Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Dear doctor, I was admitted to the hospital and my diagnosis was broken heart syndrome. How can that be? Could you fix my broken heart, doctor? This is such a common question, but unfortunately and commonly, it comes in late in the disease when individuals are already in the emergency room with a heart attack, stroke, heart rhythm disturbances, or a broken heart. This is particularly true in underserved areas, but also can be seen in the developed countries. So how can this be prevented? Never underestimate stress or other lifestyle risk factors for heart disease and cardiovascular disease in general. Lifestyle medicine is here and many chronic diseases such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart failure, diabetes, kidney diseases, obesity, COPD, and even cancer can be prevented by lifestyle modification. In previous podcasts, we stress the value of healthy eating, combating obesity, increasing physical activities and exercise, improving sleep, and promoting sleep hygiene. Today, we will obtain the angle from a renowned cardiologist, Dr. Annabel Santos Vogman, a Columbia-trained physician, professor of medicine, and a Macmillan Ibel Endowed Chair for Excellence in Clinical Cardiology at Ross University Medical School in Chicago, Illinois. She is the medical director of Rush Heart Center for Women, the Vice Chief of Academic Affairs in Cardiology, Governor of the American College of Cardiology in Illinois, and the immediate past chair of the American Association of Women in Cardiology, and the 2020 recipient of the Women's Day Red Dress Award. She's a mother of two accomplished children, and on her spare time, you will find her hiking, traveling, and reading. Welcome, Annabelle, and thank you for joining me on today's podcast for Medicine for Good. Thank you so much, Juliana. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, before we embark on our broken heart syndrome, what moved you to choose cardiology as your field of interest? Oh, we know that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of most people in the world, especially in the United States. It remains that way. We were hoping that as we developed drugs and developed a lot of technology, that it would continue to decrease. Unfortunately, we are seeing an uptick since 2014 that cardiovascular disease is no longer going down, but going rising. So we need to continue the efforts 
And I started in medicine as just wanting to be a doctor. But I realized when I was a medical student that I really wanted to save lives by helping people decrease the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death. And that is the goal of cardiologists is to decrease that major adverse cardiovascular events called MACE. And that's what I do every day. And I really find joy in helping my patients do that. It must be so fulfilling for you because you have been doing this for how many years now? 31 years. 31 years. So could you yes. share us like the source of your enjoyment in cardiology on your day to day? Yes. I really love taking care of patients and I don't like the, the epic part of it, the electronic medical records part of it, but I really do enjoy being with people and talking to them and finding out what's wrong with them and how I can help them, whatever they're complaining of about. Sometimes it's not even cardiology. Sometimes it's their social life that needs fixing and point that out to them. And I really find joy in helping people. I'm just happy to have been doing that for 31 years. Yeah, it's amazing. A lot of this can be prevented, right? So we talk about a lot about lifestyle modification, you know, maintaining a healthy diet, plant-based diet, physical activity, exercise, sleep, reduction of stress, but it's sort of hard to do and people would just want to take pills, right? So could you talk a little bit about the interaction between lifestyle modification and just taking pills and just moving on with life? Absolutely. I think we need to understand what is causing our any illness, any pain or disease. You know, disease is really disease, not feeling well. And like I said, a lot of times my patients have minor heart disease, but they have so much social problems that it impacts their heart because the heart is a very sensitive organ. So when there is stress in their life, it really manifests as increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, and increased anxiety. And I have to discern whether it's mostly a social problem or if it's really a cardiovascular disease. And first and foremost, I always make sure that their hearts are fine. So I have to do the appropriate things. And unfortunately, women are often told that their disease is just from anxiety and never even look at an EKG or a cardiovascular test to make sure that their hearts are fine. So once I establish that their hearts are fine, then we concentrate on what's causing their illness. And oftentimes, like I said, I find that there's something going on in their lives. As you know, they recently came up with the fact that most diseases are worsened by 80% are worsened by the social determinants of health. And we can only improve on 20% of it. So the World Health Organization and CDC are really concentrating on the social determinants of health to decrease cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And we could talk more about the social determinants of health later and also how women are diagnosed and undertreated in terms of cardiovascular health, right. right? So when I was in training, not too many women were in cardiology and that had, you know, since changed, right? Can you give us a glimpse of what is it like now to join the field of cardiology as a woman? It's really interesting. When I decided to become a cardiologist, I didn't even look at the statistics. I didn't know that there were so few women in cardiology. I just 
do what I want to do. And once I'm passionate about something, I just pursue it because I don't think that should deter anyone from going into what they want to do. But unfortunately, cardiology remains a male-dominated field. Only 15% are women cardiologists and the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology are both working to increase that number because in order to take care of diverse population, and it's 51% women, right, in the United States, we need a diverse group of doctors and nurses that will help take care of these people. If you don't have a lot of women cardiologists who are the ones looking into cardiovascular disease in women, and you'll see the authors of most papers on heart disease in women are by women because we care about it and it's been underdiagnosed, undertreated. So we need to do something about that. And our groups of women in cardiology, just like the AHA Women in Cardiology and the ACC Women in Cardiology are making an incredible effort to enroll or to interest, encourage young women as young as high school students to think about cardiology. So we have programs for high school students, college students, residents, medical students, and residents to go into cardiology. So it's a full frontal effort. So we're hoping that we will succeed and hopefully get to about 25% in the near future. I think one at a time, right? So Yeah, I think that's a a useful thing to start the training from high school, basically try to involve you because I take high school students, college students to the Philippines to engage them in community projects. So more to follow on that one. I'd be happy to go with you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have them even here during the pandemic that they were stuck here. We were giving them projects like writing papers, getting involved in some early research. So jointly, we will try to do something like that. So while you were on the topic of women, there's so many diseases that women are underrepresented, right? So in research, we're underrepresented. So in diseases, heart disease is underdiagnosed and underrepresented and undertreated in women. Could you explore on that one? And can you explain why this occurred? Yeah. You know, for a long time, we didn't understand why women who would present with chest pain, that sounds just like angina, that sounds like it's coming from the heart, they would have normal stress tests, or if they have an abnormal stress test, we take them to the cath lab and we find no obstructive disease. And so a lot of women were told, oh, don't worry about it, that you don't have any disease. And they were misdiagnosed because they probably did have some coronary artery disease. It just doesn't present as an obstruction and that they could open up and put a stent in and make them feel better. It wasn't until a group of researchers like Dr. Pepin and Dr. Noel Berry-Merce at Cedars-Sinai that they found through the Y study, Women's Ischemic Symptom Evaluation Study, that they found that these women have a microvascular disease or small vessel disease. Their endothelial cells don't react normally. And so instead of dilating, they remain stiff. And this has been the pathophysiology of a lot of diseases in women, such as the broken heart syndrome. It's an endothelial problem. And I know we'll talk about the broken heart syndrome a little bit later, but this breakthrough 
in finding that women have microvascular disease really led to a lot of research. And we now can prove by PET studies or by MRI studies that they do have disease. It's something that we can quantify. It's not in their heads. They are not supposed to be dismissed from the ER. They're not supposed to be dismissed from your cardiovascular practice and told there's nothing wrong with you. So these women have true disease and we are now only now trying to figure out how to help these women. But we know that lifestyle changes, decreasing your blood pressure, decreasing your cholesterol, increasing your physical activity. I found that my patients who have severe microvascular disease are really helped by just exercise. They need to exercise every day and they feel so much better. So a lot of work is going into that. There are certain drugs that can help them, but it's always on top of the physical activity and lifestyle changes. That's interesting. Is it also sometimes women can present with vague symptoms also and not the typical symptoms of this crushing chest pain? Yeah, women don't usually have as much obstructive coronary artery disease, so they're not presenting with big heart attacks. They're presenting with a little bit of discomfort. The chest pain guidelines were just written, and I know Dr. Martha Gulati, who is the chair of that writing group, she started the Heart Center for Women at Rush with me back in 2003, and so she knows what we deal with. Women don't say the words that we are taught in medical school to pay attention to. And a lot of my patients will say, doctor, I'm not having chest pain. I'm having just some discomfort. It's just some fullness. And I said, well, I understand how you describe it, but if I don't write chest pain, the insurance company won't pay for it. They said, okay, you can call it chest pain. So it really is amazing how different women talk from men. Men will just say, yeah, it's I'm having chest pain. And then they'll get the EKG and everyone will rally around them. But women will say, I just don't feel well. And they'll point to, maybe I have gas, maybe I have indigestion. They will try to downplay their own heart disease. But we're trying to educate women not to downplay their heart disease and to ask for an EKG and to be their strong advocate to decrease the risk of death and uh, heart attacks in these Mm -hmm, women. mm -hmm, mm Yeah. Yeah. I know like as a primary care physician, that's basically what we see is like, well, I just don't feel well. And it's so hard to place your finger when someone says, well, I don't feel well. I'm a little nauseous. I'm a little dizzy. So a lot of symptoms like taking you away from looking at the heart, right? Right. It's hard to be sometimes aggressive in terms of like doing EKG and doing all the other workups. So The workup is delayed and of course the treatment will also be delayed, right? And intervention even are delayed. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Very true. Yeah. In terms of statistics, can you give us a clue on the difference of cardiovascular disease in men and women? Yes. So women have more strokes. There are 55,000 women having more strokes than men every year. So it's a big problem for women. And most of my patients are more afraid of strokes than heart attacks. And they have a right to be because women do have more strokes than men. In terms of heart attacks, they present later. So they're older. And like I said, they don't have that dramatic obstructive coronary artery disease most of the time. But there are definitely women who present with obstructive coronary artery disease, the SD elevation, myocardial infarction that need to be opened up immediately. 
So I don't want to take away from the severity of that, but most women will have that microvascular disease or non-obstructive coronary artery disease and will present with non-ST elevation on myocardial infarction. So there are those differences. Women have more systolic hypertension than men. Women have less atrial fibrillation than men, and we can go into that a little bit later. But in terms of the broken heart syndrome, the ratio of women to men getting broken heart syndrome is nine to one. 90% of people who present with broken heart syndrome or Takotsubo are women. Mm-hmm. So there are just some of those statistics. Yeah. So now that we are on the broken heart syndrome, I'm so excited to talk about it. Tell me, what is broken heart syndrome? Yeah, it's a fascinating form of heart attack that we see in the emergency room. Women or men, and like I said, more women, especially postmenopausal women, are at higher risk for forgetting this. It's called Takotsubo because it, the heart dilates. It looks like an aneurysm, and the bottom part of it will not contract. So it looks like an octopus catcher that the Japanese coined as Takotsubo because that's what an octopus catcher looks like. And we call it broken heart syndrome here in the United States or stress cardiomyopathy is a more formal name of it. And it is often induced by severe stress. And there is a happy stress too. Very rare, but there is a happy stress where you get too excited, but it's that adrenaline that causes the heart to do this. But it looks just like an SD elevation MI. Fascinating. They take them to the cath lab and there's no blockage, but the heart is totally abnormal. And the problem is we don't know. Some people can die of ventricular arrhythmias from having this problem and they just die at home. And we don't know whether it was broken heart syndrome or not because they are just not even taken to the emergency room. So we don't know what the denominator is, but the ones that make it to the hospital, they usually will give them medications. They'll calm the heart down and the heart can go back to normal, just like it never happened. And I was saying the ratio is nine to one that women get it a lot more than men. And it was fascinating. The paper that I wrote with Dr. Ariana, we found that in our review of the literature that women tend to get the stress cardiomyopathy because of emotional stress and men get it from physical stress. Like they just did a lot of sports activity or they are very sick in the hospital. They're Mm -hmm. in the ICU, they have severe disease, and their hearts just balloon up and stress cardiomyopathy. Unfortunately, they have a higher mortality because it's a physical illness that's causing them. The women usually, after that big surge of adrenaline, when they can die of this broken heart syndrome. So you mentioned that most of the cause of death is perhaps due to arrhythmias or rhythm disturbances. I know this is your expertise, really. So atrial fibrillation. So when the heart dilates like that, do they have mainly atrial fibrillation or any ventricular arrhythmias leading to death? Yeah, they can have ventricular arrhythmias. Atrial fibrillation is not as well associated with Katsubo, but we do see a lot more ventricular arrhythmias during that period. And so we give them beta blockers, we give them aspirin, of course, and then, you know, try to figure out what's causing the problem. And they can usually pinpoint a problem. And when do they recover? When could you expect the heart to, like, I mean, have a reduction of that dilatation? 
That's a great question. It's really variable. I think it depends on severity and the cause of the problem. So for the men who are having the stress cardiomyopathy, when they recover from the illness, their hearts can also recover. For the women who have this emotional cause, they have to recover from that emotional trauma. And their hearts can recover with the use of medications, like I said, so beta blockers. And if their blood pressure is high, we will use ACE or ARBs to remodel their heart. And I have been fortunate enough to take care of many women who have the stress cardiomyopathy and almost all of them recover back to normal. So it is, they do have a good prognosis once they come to the hospital and get treated for it. That is good to know. There you yes. go. Stress reduction is part of that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Now I like to go to, you know, I usually take this stance with my patients who are not so into lifestyle modification for their hypertension and blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, did you know that Dementia is associated with cardiovascular disease, that there's this strong association, right? Well, everybody's afraid to be demented, right? So people sometimes say, well, if I have a heart attack, but when you say, well, you might get demented, or then they pay attention. Could you discuss the association or interaction between dementia and cardiovascular disease and later on cancer and cardiovascular disease? Absolutely. These are all topics that I are near and dear to my heart because I've written on all of these topics. I'm fascinated by a lot of cardiovascular disease. And as my life has been taking care of patients with atrial fibrillation, I noticed that these people have minor strokes. They don't necessarily have big strokes, but when you look at their brains, they have all these little strokes. And they definitely decrease their cognitive function after many decades of having atrial fibrillation, especially if they're not anticoagulated well or if they're not treated well. So I became very interested in cognitive function and cardiovascular disease. This started when my husband's, both of his parents had Alzheimer's. And so I wanted to prevent Alzheimer's in my husband. And so I started looking into Alzheimer's disease. And they kept talking about what increases Alzheimer's, what can decrease it. My God, this is just like cardiovascular disease. And we tell them to decrease their blood pressure, decrease their cholesterol and exercise. So I started looking at the connection between cardiovascular disease and cognitive impairment. I happened to be introduced to a neurologist who is an Alzheimer's doctor. And she was passionate about the connection between heart disease and cognitive impairment. And so we started collaborating together and I would send my patients to her a memory clinic and my patients would either forget <laughs> or they wanted to forget <laughs> or they didn't want to be seen in the memory clinic. So we came up with this idea that my colleagues should come to the Heart Center for Women, to the Rush Heart Center for Women to be seen so that when I have somebody who I feel is starting to have cognitive impairment, either due to the atrial fibrillation or due to other cardiovascular disease, she's right there and she can see them right away. And they feel very comfortable seeing a cognitive impairment doctor in a cardiology office. And we have done this for almost 10 years now, and it's been incredibly successful. My patients really appreciate being tested 
And unfortunately, some of them have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but we need to prepare the patient and the family about what's coming. So it's been incredibly helpful. We've written about this and it was published a few years ago, the connection between cardiovascular disease and cognitive impairment. And unfortunately, more women have cognitive impairment with their cardiovascular disease than men. And it's not just because they're older when they get cardiovascular disease. There is something about being female that increases the risk of cognitive impairment when they have cardiovascular disease. So this is a field that has been that we are working on and the American Heart Association has become very interested in this field as well. Mm -hmm. So they just gave some money, some grant money to study this problem. So I'm glad that the American Heart Association has taken this on and hopefully we'll have some answers in the near future. Yeah, yeah, so that's fascinating. How about cancer? Yeah, just like cognitive impairment, cancer is also can be lifestyle driven. So if you have an unhealthy lifestyle, you don't exercise, you don't eat the right foods, you have a higher risk of cancers. Alcohol can cause breast cancer and that can cause atrial fibrillation. So there's a lot of commonality between cardiovascular disease risk factors and cancer risk factors. Mm -hmm. But not only that, the other intersection between cancer and cardiovascular disease is that if you take somebody with cardiovascular disease and you start giving them chemotherapy, their risk is going to be higher for cardiovascular disease worsening or death. As most medical students know, doxorubicin or adriamycin can cause heart failure. But what was fascinating in a paper that we just reviewed and wrote an editorial for is that the Women Health Initiative patients, these were women that were studied by the NIH. And when Dr. Healy was the first NIH director, she studied women, all kinds of diseases of women. And one was hormone replacement therapy to see if it would decrease cardiovascular disease because there were some observational studies that showed that. The nurses' health study showed that if you are taking hormone replacement therapy, you had less risk of heart disease. Well, unfortunately, that didn't translate to older women who already had cardiovascular disease. They increased the risk of having strokes and heart attacks when they took hormone replacement therapy. So there's a lot we can learn from doing randomized control studies and not just observational studies. And that's why it's so important for women to be part of studies is because we need to know what happens to them because we react differently. We respond differently to drugs than men. So I just was a guest editor for the American Heart Journal Plus trying to figure out how we can enroll more women into cardiovascular trials. And one way is to increase the number of women trialists because they study women and they can enroll more women into trials. They can convince more women to be research subjects. There's a lot of trust that happens when somebody enrolls in a study. And if a patient doesn't trust the doctors doing the study, you're not going to get them to enroll. And women need to hear that this is a good study, can trust the study. So let's go back to cancer because what happened in this paper was that they looked at these women who had cancer and they followed them for cardiovascular adverse effects. 
And what they found was not just an increase in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. They were more often admitted for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And they had the same bad outcomes as half rep as the reduced ejection fraction. So this is a new heart failure in patients with breast cancer that we need to worry about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We used to feel that as long as your echo shows that you have a normal heart, that you're not at risk from the breast cancer treatment. But what we're finding is that these women who had breast cancer and were treated did have heart failure, even with a normal ejection fraction. So we do have to take care of their blood pressures, educate them about this risk. Mm-hmm. As you know, more women have PEF than have REF. They tend to have more heart failure from a preserved ejection fraction. So they have normal echoes, but they have these heart failure symptoms. And key is to identify that this is heart failure. Usually an echo will show diastolic dysfunction or a BNP, the B natriuretic peptide is elevated. And those are good signs that this is from heart failure and not just deconditioning of the body. And that's why they're short of breath. We need to be aggressively treating these women. And fortunately, they're finding more drugs that are good for half-path, such as the Secubitril, Valsartan Secubitril drugs that has been found to help women and men with preserved ejection fraction. And then some of the SGLT2 inhibitors for diabetes have been found to help with this heart failure. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news is we're finally getting some drugs for these people, which we did not have for the longest time. <laughs> is that to enhance remodeling, you think, or neurohormonal? Uh... Yes, a lot of it is neurohormonal. A lot of it is blood pressure reduction with the cubital sergeant. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And it, that's really exciting field. But how about mortality in women, for example? Increasing maternal mortality, what is that due to? Yeah, unfortunately, we've become aware that in the United States, maternal mortality has been increasing. Maternal mortality is defined as death within 42, I don't know where they came up with the 42 days, within 42 days of termination of a pregnancy. So before and after the pregnancy, if it's within that time period, it's considered as maternal mortality. And we are seeing an increase in maternal mortality in the United States. And we have really looked into this because it's a huge problem. Can you imagine a baby not having their moms for the rest of their lives? It's just the most horrible thing. Everyone needs a mom. And cardiologists are making a huge effort to try to decrease the cardiovascular cause of maternal mortality, which has become the number one cause of maternal mortality. It used to be bleeding, it used to be obstetrical problems, but they've done a great job with the obstetricians, have done a great job decreasing the mortality from that. We have to do our job in decreasing cardiovascular cause of maternal mortality. And unfortunately, the odds are worse for us because the women are having their babies at an older age, at a higher BMI. There are a lot of obese women that are becoming pregnant at a young age. So a lot of young women are becoming obese. So they have hypertension, they have diabetes. So unfortunately, our patients are sicker when they become pregnant. And so we are working with the American College of Obstetrician Gynecologists where we can decrease that maternal mortality. Awareness is number one. 
here in the state of Illinois, because of women, the gynecologists and the cardiologists who work with our Illinois Department of Public Health, increase the coverage of postpartum follow-up to one year if they're in public aid. So the public aid will cover visits. And now, thank goodness, the televisits, we can do televisits or phone calls with them to make sure that they're maintaining a low blood pressure, that they're not increasing their weight, they're not getting diabetes, to decrease that maternal mortality. Yeah, so I think that's so powerful to know that, yes, increasing the awareness can make a difference and also increasing awareness of the the presence of all of these risk factors that can be prevented, right? So we could prevent obesity, hypertension, all this cardiovascular disease, and even cancer with lifestyle modification. Now, let's take you back to an area that I'm particularly interested with global health. I know globally, there's increase in hypertension, diabetes, obesity. So I know obesity and diabetes go in parallel. And in the Philippines, where, you know, in the developing countries, they don't have much resources than developed countries, right? So they don't have the option for all of this expensive pharmacologic intervention and diagnostic intervention. So how could we help decrease globally this cardiovascular disease? What would your suggestion be? Well, from a personal basis, I think every healthcare clinician should help their patients one at a time to decrease the risk. Treating that blood pressure, talking about activity and lifestyle changes, making sure that their diabetes is under control. Preventing diabetes is very important. Checking their cholesterol. So in terms of global health, the United Nations wants to decrease non-communicable disease by 25% in the year 2025. That's very close. So hopefully they'll have positive answers for us. The World Health Organization has a very ambitious goal of decreasing premature deaths by 30% by the year 2030. And guess who's going to do all of that? All of us, right? (laughs) And so make these ambitious goals for us, for everyone to try to really help our patients. So everyone has a role in this. They can't do it by just stating it. Every one of us have to take that very seriously. And so we try to be role models for them, for our patients, by keeping our weight down, increasing our physical activity, and taking care of ourselves. And so you can be a good role model for decreasing their risk factors as well. I wish I were a better role model, but it's hard. I understand. I'm not one of these people who just can run five miles every day. I have aches and pains, so I do what I can. But every one of us has to take a part in this, in these goals. Yeah, I think so. As you mentioned, one patient at a time. So take home point or pearls for our listeners. Like I said, take care of yourself so you can take care of your patients. Know your numbers, get your cholesterol numbers, get your blood pressure and get it down if it's high. And then one other thing that we didn't really touch upon is kidney disease. If you don't check your labs, you don't know what your kidney function is doing. So these drugs that we give for blood lowering blood pressure, lowering diabetes, they have an effect on the kidneys and the diseases have an effect on the kidneys. So make sure that you check your kidney function, 
because so many people are ending up with dialysis and it's a terrible disease, really limits your lifestyle and increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you mentioned about kidney disease because in the Philippines, there's explosion of dialysis centers. Exactly. And it's so sad because a lot of these people could not even afford the dialysis. So a lot of them would go like a week without the dialysis because they just can't. So, so dangerous. So yeah. dangerous to do that. Unfortunately, my father, after decades and decades of high blood pressure, finally had kidney disease that required dialysis. So it affects all of us. It's not just that patient, but the whole family and the whole community is affected by cardiovascular disease and eventually kidney disease as well. I know. And for example, as I mentioned in the Philippines, we see a lot of that. You know, a lot of the family members would not let mom go because they cannot afford dialysis, right? So they sell everything that they have, their sofa set, their carabaos, you know, <laughs> uh, and even their home just to yeah. afford dialysis. So it really impacts the entire family. So I think we have to stress again, prevention of this cardiovascular events and a lot to do with not only stress reduction, physical activity, maintaining a good diet, good sleep regimen, and be happy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I try to be happy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Annabelle. I oh, so appreciate so welcome. you. Thank you so much, Julia. Have a wonderful was... day and enjoy Michigan. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.